Hey everybody, Dave Hodges here, host of The Common Sense Show. Thank you so much for joining us on this special edition of The Common Sense Show. And we're going to cover a topic that we've really not covered individually, specifically. We've mentioned it in passing, but we're going to take on this topic head-on with Alex Shannonberg. And he is from Ontario, but he publishes internationally. He's written about cases of euthanasia, which is what we're going to talk about today. And more to the point, state-sponsored euthanasia, which concerns me greatly because of the potential for, um, shall we say, malfeasance. And I'm sure we're going to be getting into a lot of that. He's coming to us from Ontario. Alex, I'm really glad you could join us. You're doing such important work, and I don't really know anyone else that is doing what you are doing with regard to the euthanasia issue. Well, actually, there there are very few people in the world who are focusing heavily on this question. There's quite a few people who are going, who are into the issue in a local sense, but internationally, um, it's become sort of my expertise, and I've been doing this for over 20 years. The issue of euthanasia and assisted suicide have become worldwide issues, so it's sort of important that I, that I keep on top of it because a lot of the local people trying to stop the advance of this culture of death. Uh, they're they're able to use the information I'm providing them in order to fight back against this. Yeah, one of the things that we saw here in America beginning about, oh gosh, 12, 15 years ago, was when the elderly reach a point where they're not quite as sharp as they were, the courts are often taking their assets from them. Is this part of the same process? Because I would suspect it would be. Well, it's a little bit different because what you're talking about is the issue of someone who's become incompetent or semi-incompetent, and then what happens is uh, due to pressures of, of a family member or whatever, they're getting involved in their assets. This is a little different because we're talking about questions related to health care. So what you are seeing, though, which does concern me greatly, is when someone has health care issues, they're often now being denied health care if they have, let's say, they're, they're very elderly or they have uh, what we would call comorbidities. They have several health issues but nothing actually causing their death that sometimes they will say oh well you know we're not going to provide treatment and or certain types of treatment in these situations but you know we saw this actually during the COVID uh, epidemic time when everyone was concerned about their hospitals filling up they started saying to uh, elderly people they started to have these protocols in different places where they were saying to the elderly people um, well we won't care for you in the hospitals and you even saw the uh, the regulations out of New York and a few other states where they were sending people who were sick back into the nursing home, so they were denying them the, the treatment they needed in, in the hospital, they were sending them back into the nursing home, which made it even worse, of course, because this was a disease that was, uh, how would you say, contagious. So now you had a situation of massive outbreaks in our nursing homes and lots of deaths, and it was precipitated by an attitude of uh, feudal care, of uh, denying certain amounts of treatment and uh, medical costs to people with who are getting older you know it's interesting that you're expressing it this way and that was our concern too uh but to even go one step further with this i don't know if you're aware of this or not but on the cdc website and i don't know if they've scrubbed it because there's been a tension called to it but they have something they referred to as green zones and their so-called right, and they have no right to mandate anything, they can only suggest, but they're exceeding their authority, and they say they can mandate elderly people with what you just described, comorbid conditions, 
to be isolated for their own protection. However, when you dig deeper into the uh, FEMA-associated documents, it says that when resources are exceeded by demand, they can withdraw care and give palliative care. Are you aware of the CDC's position on that here in America? Well, we're actually seeing the same thing that had happened in Canada. So, in fact, exactly those very things occurred where they suggested that we, they referred to it as non-abandonment, but in fact it was a type of abandonment. So they would say, uh, we're not going to provide treatment under these conditions. So all of these protocols were based on a certain concern that the hospitals were going to be overflowing. Uh, and therefore, we would uh, we'd be in trouble. But nonetheless, what what they were doing is they were determining that certain conditions were not going to provide treatment for in this case. Uh, yeah, so that's exactly what was going on, and they were denying people uh, basic care, is what I would say. And this is also why you see this massive number of elderly people who died by COVID or died with COVID-related conditions, etc., during that time. And it had a lot to do with the fact that we... We, we were abandoning them. We were providing them only palliative care, which in fact might have actually um, precipitated a quicker death because of the effect on their respiratory system. But at the same time, it was not actually providing them the care they needed in order to survive. These things are, they relate to the attitude of the culture, but they're not quite the same as euthanasia and assisted suicide, even though they have distinct similarities. It's the attitude in the society that certain lives are not worth living. And you would say, well, how does that deal directly with euthanasia? Because I thought euthanasia, they say that's all about people choosing to die and somebody else doing the act. Or in the case of assisted suicide, someone's so quote, 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 choosing to die. But in fact, the cultural attitude is what underpins what's going on here. So you have a cultural attitude that certain lives or certain conditions, it's not worth living. And under that rubrics, now you have euthanasia and assisted suicide also being promoted. So you can see how this whole concept of freedom, choice, and autonomy, which is how they sell this idea of killing people, they say it's all about freedom, choice, and autonomy, then in fact, it's actually in many ways a lie. There's, there's, uh, there's not really about freedom, choice, and autonomy. It's really about giving certain people, in this case physicians, the right in law to make these decisions. Yeah. So we should probably go into the basic question. Before you go on, I want to go back and ask you about something you just said. You were talking about the cultural underpinnings, and I'm wondering if there's so much the culture as they are the political, and maybe the culture isn't quite in line with the political, but they're taking license to do what they want to do. Is that is that a way to look at it? Well, it could be. You know, sometimes it goes both ways, but uh, often the the politics uh, drives the culture. But sometimes it goes both ways. So um, the fact of it is, is that. Um, uh, it's it's very that's a difficult question to answer as I say because it, it certainly goes both ways. That there's a cultural pressure at the one side, but at the same time there's also a political pressure. There's certain people that uh, drive the politics, and I'm not, I'm not going to get into this whole thing about conspiracies or whatever. But it's basically how politics works. You know, you you, you look at the uh, the issue and then you figure out how to drive the question. And this is exactly what's going on. But what we've seen also in the culture in general, what I've learned is because of the philosophy I have of life, I don't really fit into the culture the way I once might have when I was younger, etc., because I actually believe that every life has equality. I actually believe that every life has purpose and meaning and that we shouldn't be killing people. So obviously speaking, that is sort of outside of the cultural norm today, and I start to really understand that more. Uh, but the fact of it is, is that when you have a cultural attitude that oh, 
it's better that we not live that way. It's or or you have a cultural fear of having disability, disability or a cultural fear of uh, dying a bad death, which has sort of been built into the culture to accept these things. Uh, then what you get in the end is you get uh, a lot more death. You know, you get a lot more acceptance of killing, and this is where the culture seems to be driving itself. Yeah, that's I, I totally agree with that, and that's interesting but sometimes like here in america right now i'll tell you with regard to the COVID issue just as an example there's a huge divide between the political view of how we should deal with it and the cultural view i mean <laughs> we couldn't be any farther apart and i'm talking most of our country on this issue so i, I would expect yeah, I to find the, the same thing in canada yeah I, a I divide in canada the difference between canada and the u.s is the divide is uh is uh there's more how would you say, of a heavy sort of progressive liberal uh, approach that's acceptable within Canada than in the U.S. You've got more of a mixed bag in the U.S. So, And what that makes me wonder is that liberal progressive attitude, does it make euthanasia more likely or less likely? Well, we've legalized euthanasia in Canada, yes. right? And in the U.S., we have assisted suicide that's legal in about 10 states. So... Uh, the difference between Canada and the U.S. is actually quite substantial on these issues because of the fact that, uh, uh, you know, and it's euthanasia that they've legalized in Canada, which is lethal injection, which is a form of homicide, whereas assisted suicide being a, a form of suicide, someone's assisting another person, uh, but it's still a form of suicide. So you can see that they're very similar issues, incredibly similar, but at the same time they have a difference. Yeah, and, and in fact, you wrote an article here that I was looking at uh, euthanasia, don't follow Canada's example and what I'm wondering too are are the people making the decision to end their own lives or is this often state-sponsored we're going to end your life because well there's this whole false concept of freedom and autonomy so what you have is a situation where there's a lot of uh, uh, fear that's been built up into the system and so there's there's people choosing death certainly they are but are they actually choosing death or are they uh, in fear of their death coming in a way that they uh, would not otherwise want it to happen. And when you create a lot of fear around death, then you're going to have more death. The other thing is, how does the law actually work is how I always explain it to people. I say, well, is it actually people choosing or is it the power given to the doctors? So when you actually look at what the law says, the law says it's the doctor who decides, right? The law says you need a doctor or in Canada, also nurse practitioners, the doctors or nurse practitioners they decide you need one of them saying yes and you need another one agreeing so you just need two and then they can go ahead with the act and the law is all about what the doctor must do to ensure that the act that they've done is following the rubrics of the law so you say yes but someone requested you know but there's many reasons i might request a death there's many reasons why i might be going through a deep depression or i might be going through uh deep emotional angst because I, I keep saying to people, you can't divorce the reality of what it means to be human from the issue of a request to have your life ended. There's lots of people who go through suicidal ideation. There's lots of people who go through very difficult times in their life and are doing so in, in a lonely and abandoned manner. And there's lots of people who have great fear and no support. So now we're talking about, oh, there's a freedom of choice. Is it really a freedom of choice? Is it really a freedom of choice? Well, the answer really is none. It's not really a freedom of choice here. It really is a cultural pressure that's put upon people. Um, but, of course, there are the radical autonomists. 
there are some people out there, and, and uh, we know of them. They're, you know, you see it in the culture, these radical, radical autonomous type people who do not care about the social contract or the others in society. They're only concerned about themselves, and they will say, I don't care that it's actually a doctor lethally injected me. I don't care if this is really a form of homicide. I just want to die. Uh, the question is, is once that's accepted, which is what's happened in Canada, which is what's happening in the state of Oregon and Washington State where you've had assisted suicide for a long time, what happens is then the change in the culture around that whole question, that's what becomes concerning because once it's okay to kill, then the only question remaining is who can do the act, for what reason, you know, who can do the act and for what reason? This yeah. is all we're really looking at. So... The question of, there's there's really only one bright line I keep saying to people. The one bright line is, you can't kill somebody. Once you can kill somebody, we're only debating the rules now. That's disturbing. I'm a former mental health therapist. I used to work with suicidal people. In fact, I used to help oversee a suicide prevention hotline. And one of the old sayings, the layman sayings, that goes with that aspect of treatment in diagnostics is that if the person could live six months beyond the event, they probably wouldn't have wanted to do the event. And that, that's kind of the premise that mental health here uh, operates on, that uh, people don't always know what's in their own best interest. And I think that what you're describing here takes advantage of the fact that people often aren't competent to make that decision. That's what I'm hearing you say, and I agree with it. Yeah, that's exactly it. What happens is is that people get into a situation where they feel like it's almost like they're wearing uh, blinders. They get so deep into the reality of their of their suicidal feelings or their negativity that it's hard for them to see beyond that. And the point of uh, you know suicide prevention counseling is to help them through that to get to the other side. And that is always the hope. And in the case of assisted suicide, uh, they're being told, oh, well, in your medical condition or with your health condition, whatever that might be, uh, and now in Canada they've even extended this to people with mental health issues. So that's the next thing. So in your mental health issue, that you seem to be uh, someone who is uh, how would you say treatment resistant. Therefore, it's it's uh, it's considered acceptable that we end your life. Well, to me, that's a form of abandonment. It's called a cultural abandonment. But on top of it, it's a form of discrimination because you've determined certain lives are not worth living. So when the doctor is saying yes to someone who's supposedly asking for death, is this about their freedom or is this about the abandonment of that person? I believe it's abandoning that person, abandoning them even worse because it's the death. And on top of it, the culture is given or culture, the, the politicians have given these positions in, in Canada, also nurse practitioners. The right and law to kill you. That's a pretty powerful place for them to be. Yes. Uh, and and I would suggest uh, that's uh, not the place that uh, culture should ever go. And, and sometimes killing can just amount to withdrawal of life-sustaining treatment. I'll give you an example. I, I was shocked. Oh, gosh, I think it was probably 12, 14 years ago when I was investigating the uh, National Health Service in, in uh, Britain and their policies uh, towards life-sustaining uh, practices and age-related withdrawal because I was afraid the same thing would come in under Obamacare. So when I looked at the NHC, I found they did things like, I think it was when you were 55, they, could, they wouldn't give you dialysis. They'd give you comfort care. 
And then they started developing a whole lot of other approaches like that too that basically involved the withdrawal of life-sustaining treatment. Does that enter into what you're concerned about and, uh, and how you view euthanasia? Well, once again, these are the cultural issues at hand because the fact of mm-hmm. it is, is withdrawing treatment is not the same as actually lethally injecting someone, but it can be. It can be very similar. But you see, one is, uh, one is an inaction, withdrawing treatment, uh, not providing treatment, uh, and the end of an inaction is natural death might be premature, but it's an attitude that leads to, you know, why did we do that? Why was that decision made? It becomes similar than to euthanasia, which is an action. An action meaning I actually injected you with lethal drug cocktail to kill you. And uh, that's, you can see how there's a, there's a little difference, obviously, between the two. And actually, in fact, I believe there's a clear difference between the two. Uh, nonetheless, uh, you can see how attitudes can mix. So once you've allowed this and you say that, oh, like we have the same thing here in Canada because it's all about having universal health care. So with universal health care, you have a situation where there is uh, a need within the system to control cost. And uh, you'll see the same thing in certain places that dealing with the Medicare question in the U.S. How do we control the cost of this medical treatment issue? Well, the one way you control it is you say that certain conditions don't get this type of treatment and others do. But then there's also the issue of the long waiting lists, et cetera, which we have. But euthanasia becomes an attitude, well, now it's okay to kill. We say it's okay. Now, we say it's voluntary just to make you feel better. But is it always voluntary? give you a prime example so now in Canada you have to be 18 years old to request to be dying by lethal injection it's the same idea as in Oregon and Washington State where they've had assisted suicide for a long time the assisted suicide the person must be 18 years old or older um, so you say oh well they have to be a competent adult is what the idea is. so hey well what's wrong with a competent adult asking to have their life ended in these circumstances and the question then becomes well how can you then leave it to the competent adult knowing that somebody else might be in a situation where, well, they've become incompetent. Maybe they had a stroke. Maybe they have had a car accident. And due to their, their injuries, they are now incompetent. But they're in a medical condition, which is uh, causing great frailty. And family members and friends would say they wouldn't want to live this way. So now you get the next pressure of, okay, should we now apply the same principles to someone who's incompetent? Most people would say, no, they should be left to competent people only. But wouldn't that be mean and horrific to do that to someone when if they were just competent, they could have this, quote, quote, death. But because they're incompetent, they can't have this death. And that's exactly the argument you get. It becomes a form of discrimination to deny this to the incompetent. And there's a big campaign that's gone on about this. Our own law was just amended last March, and it says that uh, it used to be that you had to be capable of consenting at the time of death. And they changed that. They said that so long as you had consented already, that if you become incompetent, you can still die. So therefore, that's the acceptance, the opening of the door of euthanasia for the incompetent. Now there's this case of the four-year-old in Quebec whose mother wants that four-year-old to die by euthanasia. She's arguing that her child is suffering and that it's, uh, it's wrong to force her child to suffer because her child will never be competent her child's medical condition means her child will never be competent. But on top of it, her child, because her child's under 18, they wouldn't be considering this child. And yet she's saying that, that's horrific. So now that becomes a new form of discrimination, denying killing. Yeah, we're going to talk about that here, too, because I think that could be precedent-setting. Uh, we're speaking with Alex Shannonberg from um, the 
a euthanasia prevention center and uh, he does international analysis of euthanasia laws and is really arguing for uh, on the side of morality from my perspective but anyway we're going to rejoin alex in just a moment but ladies and gentlemen you know i've been very concerned about the food supply chain coming into america the 19 meat packing plants have not been reopened the fact that farmers are being paid large sums of money in the united states not to grow crops and then of course we have the mega drought in the west that's been prolonged and we've got dams and reservoirs that are at record low levels which affects crop yield I could go on and on, but you get the idea. Now we're looking at the possibility of long-haul trucker strikes because they won't go to areas where there are vaccine mandates. Well, that could affect uh, the supplies as well, too, because your grocery store depends on three to six just-in-time deliveries every single day. And if you don't, you run out of stuff in about a day or two. So this is why we're really pushing storable food here. So you take the decision away from government on who eats, and you put it in your own hands. And this is why we represent MPS, because we feel they're the best at what they do. Restaurant quality, 25-year shelf life. I've tasted the food, folks. It's it's very, very acceptable. And uh, there's lots of diversity in the food, and there's a special if you go to preparewithdave.com. And, and we've done this here in our family, and we recommend that you take necessary means here to counter you know, what is beginning to unfold, because you see the problems in the grocery stores right now. Go to preparewithdave.com. Also, you know I represent Noble Gold, and they don't just do gold. That's just the name of their company. And I went from being just an advertiser to also a customer because I saw the good they were doing. And right now, when Janet Yellen, former head of the Fed, now Treasury Secretary, writes an open letter to Nancy Pelosi and says, we can't sustain the debt, we won't be able to meet our debt obligations by October 15th, uh, do you think that's going to affect the banks? Well, I think it could affect the banks. And this is why I've had Noble Gold. Again, look at my finances, my distributions, what I should be doing to bulletproof my finances as much as possible going into this really difficult period economically. And I would recommend you do the same thing. If you have assets to protect, you owe it to yourself to have a no obligation, no pressure conversation with Noble Gold. And you can call them at 877-646-5347. That's 877-646-5347. And I want to stress, if you move into Noble Gold uh, advice and investments and so forth, you have to pull the trigger. They are trained to not push you. And I just want to really emphasize that. You can just fact gather and think about it for a while and decide what you want to do. But if Janet Yellen's right, that October 15th deadline that she mentioned in writing looms large and soon anyway alex i'm really glad that uh, you're with us here because this is an undercovered topic and you do a fantastic job of it and you cover it from so many different angles and in so many different uh, perspectives from countries like for example here you wrote an article called the australian euthanasia bill is deliberately deceptive and i wanted to ask you about that specifically because we've got a pretty good following from down under and in New Zealand. So what's your concern, major concern, about the Australian euthanasia bill? Well, actually, all of these bills are very similar. So the fact that the Australian, this is the Queensland Australia bill that uh, that was the article was about, all these bills are very similar because they are written by very um, similar people worldwide. The euthanasia lobby has its, uh, how would you say, its organizers. That's how it's organized. It's got the World Federation Right to Die Societies. There are people who specifically work on writing the legislation. So if I'm talking about the Canadian law 
or if I'm talking about the assisted suicide law in Oregon, they are written de deliberately deceptive. And it's the same thing with that Australian law, because the question then becomes, they don't use def definitions within the terminology. I'll give you a prime example, just to have it hit home. The original Canadian law said that you were qualified for euthanasia if your natural death was reasonably foreseeable, but then it never defined what it meant by natural death is reasonably foreseeable. So when I was arguing that the law really made no sense, it wasn't only me arguing it, it was also the euthanasia lobby. They were admitting, well, we don't know really what this means either, so therefore everything's a go. And that's exactly the type of thing that they do because they don't want, they're not building laws to create restrictions. They're building laws to sell to politicians. So when you consider, I, I was talking about the issue of what's going on in the U.S. with their assisted suicide laws. So every year there's been about 20 different bills that have been debated in different legislatures in the U.S. because every year the assisted suicide lobby is trying to legalize in all these different states. And I'm, I'm always making, you know, commentaries on these bills saying, well, there really lacks a lot of meaning in this. What does it actually mean? And the reason I'm saying that is because the purpose of the bill as I say, is to build these safeguards into the legislation to sell to the politicians, but not to do it in such a way as to keep the bill tight. The idea is that the bill is capable of expanding over time, right? And that's exactly how they've defined the same thing in Australia. The bill has deliberately deceptive language to be able to expand over time. And it's not the first state, sadly. Australia, most of the states now in the Australia have... Uh, have legalized assisted suicide. So the Queen's bill, for instance, the Queensland bill, euthanasia bill, uh, the ar article was about that it also will not protect against involuntary death. When you look at the definitions within the law, is it specifically requiring someone who has requested this and it's, and it's specifically clear? And the answer is no, it's not specifically clear, it's unclear. And if it's unclear, it can be interpreted in what way? It can be interpreted wider than, and this is exactly what's going on. So it's it's not much different now. You see, now you have a situation in the U.S. where assisted suicide has been legalized as I say, in about ten states. California legalized assisted suicide in 2016, so they've had it for about five years now, and they've uh, had quite a few deaths going on. They've got about 400 a year, but now the assisted suicide lobby has not been happy with the fact that. Uh, the law limits it to assisted suicide. So what's the difference? Assisted suicide is when a doctor prescribes those lethal drug cocktails, but technically you have to take it yourself. So the law requires you to be capable of self-ingesting these drugs. Now, it's not as, um, as uh, tightly worded as some might think, because it's possible to put those drugs into, let's say, an um, you know, intravenous bag. It's possible to do it that way, and if they do it that way, someone who's not capable of swallowing can still die by assisted suicide. So when they say this, you must self-ingest, self-ingest is not tightly defined. Nonetheless, now there's a California court case to extend assisted suicide to euthanasia, which is what we said would be happening all along. And the court case is arguing that because some people are incapable of doing it to themselves, they need the doctor actually to do it to them. Therefore, they're saying the law must be extended to include euthanasia. Euthanasia is when the doctor in, or the nurse practitioner, as in Canada also, injects you. So it's a form of homicide. It's, a, it's, an, inje it's an injecting of lethal drugs rather than a self-ingestion. So you can see what's going on. Now, when you have euthanasia, you actually get a lot more death. Assisted suicide, as bad as it is and as similar as euthanasia, with euthanasia, there is a lot more death 
because it's easier to do euthanasia, lethal injection, than to have someone do it to themselves, assisted suicide. So you look at the Canadian data and the Dutch data as compared to U.S. states of legalized assisted suicide, and you'll notice that we've got far higher rates of deaths from this. And the reason is, is of course, how much easier it is to do if it's uh, if it's euthanasia. Well, just what you're describing and what I have read uh, from your publications, you send that on your very good newsletter. It, it, there's like a global movement towards this. It seems to be marching. I won't say in complete lockstep, but moving in the same direction. And I find that odd and and, and maybe not so coincidental. Is there an international movement to pr- promote assisted suicide and euthanasia? Yes, it's actually quite a substantial international movement. And similar to many other causes, uh, you have certain billionaires that are right behind it. So people like George Soros are, are big-time funders of the euthanasia lobby worldwide. But you have an organization called the World Federation of Right to Die Society. So there's key people worldwide, not only just in Canada or the U.S. or in the Netherlands. There's key people worldwide who work together. Now, that shouldn't surprise anybody because the fact of it is, is that uh, in the same way as there's key people who oppose this worldwide and who are working together, there's key people who want this who are working together. One of the differences is that this has become uh, for, how would you say, the, uh, the ultra, um, how would you say, extreme liberal coalition of people. This is, uh, this is uh, what you say, one of their great issues right now. So it has significant, significant funding from, as I say, major donors who believe that it's important to expand euthanasia and assisted suicide. One of the reasons they want this expanded further is that we might think, oh, well, you know, they want to save uh, health care dollars. They want this. They want that. One of the reasons is, is I went to one of their conferences a few years ago, the World Federation Right to Die Society Conference. I went there a few years ago. What I was expecting was the people who I read their articles. I read the articles from the other side. And I was expecting these people to be philosophically very different from me. What I actually met was something different because I was sitting around the table having lunch with them and everything. And what the conversation around the table was very different. A lot of these people had been involved with, they had, uh, you know, illegally killed a friend. So they had been involved with, uh, you know, uh, saving up drugs to kill their friend who had cancer or kill their friend who had a disability. They One, one woman had died, had killed her mother. Another one had you know, been involved with, uh, you know, this in a silent basis. So this is before it was legal in Canada, and yet this was a conference in Canada. And the people I was sitting around the table with, for the most part, had been involved with killing somebody. So then I started realizing right off the bat, the reason the euthanasia lobby is so committed to what they believe is not only because they're philosophically believing in it, and it's because, but it's also what they've done. If you've been involved with killing someone, then obviously speaking, you want the laws that prevent you from doing this, that might actually put you in jail, you want those laws overturned. And that's what they've been busy with. And it makes a lot of sense from that point of view that that's what they're concerned about. You know what? Someone's going to ask me if I don't ask you this question. The historical figure of Dr. Kevorkian, and then ultimately how much legal trouble he got into and actually did some jail time, um, how did yeah. his views towards this topic be similar to what you're encountering now or less or more? How would he fit into this paradigm? Well, as Italian Jack of working was seen as someone who was extreme, right? Because he believed in uh, euthanasia and assisted suicide. The reason he ended up going to jail was because he, 
he was filmed actually uh, injecting Thomas Yoke. It wasn't just that he gave him lethal drugs and he took it himself. Uh, that he had been doing already, and he had filmed that already, and he had been, I would just say, charged, and he got out of those charges. But in the case of this situation, he actually injected him himself, and that was more than, at the time, the Michigan law could accept. And at this point, too, I'm sure Michigan would have a great problem with the doctor doing that intentionally. Uh, nonetheless, uh, that's what's now legal in Canada, doctors lethally injecting somebody. So he was considered extreme at the time, but what he did is he created a, um, he paved the way for the, quote, quote, more moderate people in the movement. So what you get in the U.S. is you have the legalization of assisted suicide in Oregon and Washington State and then on to other states. Now there's 10 states in the U.S. that have assisted suicide. And they, the other side, the more, how would you say, uh, moderate uh, <laughs> advocates of, of assisted suicide and euthanasia, they would say that we're not Jack of Orkian. So Jack of Orkian created a differentiation. He, he gave the political space to the people who are more quote, quote, as I said, moderate. Mm -hmm. Now, the moderates were never moderate. They just believe that uh, these things have to happen slowly because the culture isn't ready for it yet. So you look now what's going on in California. California legalized assisted suicide in 2016. Well, there's a court case now in 2021 to extend that to euthanasia, right? Uh, Oregon legalized assisted suicide in uh, 1994, but then it was held up by the courts until 97 with the second referendum. And you see what I'm getting to. They had it for quite a few years. Now they've gotten rid of the waiting periods, and they're discussing the uh, fighter, uh, sort of their further expansions of the law. So, you know, it's all about waiting for the culture to shift and then turning it into something that is even more sinister than what they have now. Yeah. And that's exactly what the moderates were about, but they weren't really as moderate. They were just more, how would you say, politically pragmatic than Jack Kevorkian. Very how did Kevorkian opened yeah. the door. Yeah. I, I completely get where you're going with this. And, hey, we're doing something similar, but at least we're not Kevorkian. And this is kind of what I meant earlier when I talked about the intersect or the difference between cultural attitudes towards this topic and, and political attitudes. But what's interesting is I did not know this that you talked about the people who have personal motive to have these laws go through so they don't go to jail. But let me ask you another question along the lines of motivation, because one of the things that occurred to me that I wondered about, but I don't have any data on, is the medical industry would have motivation, particularly healthcare insurance, to end elderly lives because we spend a disproportionate amount of our healthcare on people in the last two weeks of their life trying to extend their life. And so, do you think there is a uh, an economic motive from uh, managed healthcare to, to to promote these ideas? Well, you have to be able to look at that issue from a, a point of view of what's happened in Canada. So, Canada legalized uh, euthanasia in uh, in 2016, in June of 2016. In December of 2016, the Canadian Medical Association Journal uh, published an article explaining the amount of money that they expected the Canadian governments to save on health care. Now, we have, as I say, universal health care, so therefore there is more of a direct effect upon the government dollars when you legalize this. And they had estimated that it was going to be about, at that time, they had figured it was going to be about $138 million a year that they would end up saving based on euthanasia. Um, but in fact, I believe their numbers were very conservative in what they were actually thinking they were going to save because they didn't expect 
the cultural buy-in to be so fast on the whole question of euthanasia itself. And now Canada passed this Bill C-7 in March. Now, Bill C-7 was the expansion of euthanasia, so it includes people with mental illness and things like that. It also includes people who are incompetent but had previously requested it and things. There's a few other things. It, it took away the waiting periods and things like that. It, it expanded the law. Uh, but the fact is, is that, um, oh, and it said you didn't have to be terminally ill either. Um, so then the government came out again with a, with a study, and they asked a guy who's in charge of the uh, parliamentary budgets to look at it, and he said again that there would be a massive health care savings with the passage of there Bill C-7. So in a universal health care system, there's clear evidence of the savings. But no one ever wants to talk about that. It's sort of like the elephant in the room. And no one talks about that because they know that that would be seemingly a bit crass. But uh, at the same time, it is a reality. Obviously speaking, if, uh, if uh, you inject me with lethal drugs six months before I would have otherwise died, um, it's very likely that the healthcare system has saved significant dollars because of that. Mm-hmm. Now, there was just a study published which actually comes home even more on this issue. Now, this was only a small study. It looked at only the Ottawa area. And I just published it um, about the fact that uh, Canadian cancer patients are dying by euthanasia, but they haven't confirmed their diagnosis and they haven't attempted treatment. So what this was is it was a a, a doctor who's involved with uh, uh, cancer patients in the Ottawa area, and she looked at lung cancer patients. And uh, her point was is that the the uh, success in treating lung cancer has increased significantly over the past few years. So you have a lot higher number of people who are surviving lung cancer than a few years ago. And yet, <coughs> people who died by euthanasia, she was able to take that cohort out uh, and look at it directly. A large number of them never even had the biopsy. So they never even confirmed that they had lung cancer. They were, they were uh, diagnosed with lung cancer, but they never went through the final confirmation to ensure of it. And a lot of them never had any treatment whatsoever. So about uh, the ones who died by euthanasia, uh, 22% of them said no to treatment whatsoever. I'm just not going to have any treatment. And they died by euthanasia. So so you get now a double cohort of healthcare savings. Yes, those people die earlier if they get died by lethal injection. But many of them go through, which is normal. You, you went through, um, you know, you did counseling for suicide prevention. So a lot of these people who are going through a type of a suicidal ideation, they've given up on life. They're in fear of, a, of dying. They have decided they'd rather be dead than go through treatment. They're deciding not to have any treatment at all. And by doing that, of course, they're dying earlier. But then they're also saving money on no treatment. Well, that's so uh, the kind of thing you're seeing. But yeah, with that also, remember, Canadian law says that you don't have to be terminally ill. That's the first thing it says now. But secondly, the Canadian law says you don't have to try treatment. So therefore, you can die by euthanasia, but never have tried any treatment. Well, some people would have recovered. That was the point of the uh, of the presentation of this uh, physician in Ottawa. Some of those 45 people who died by euthanasia would have recovered with treatment. We don't know. Obviously, they didn't receive treatment. They died by euthanasia. And um, so we don't know. But some of them would have, she says. Well, I, I well, tend to like, agree with the randomization of the expected outcomes, uh, but th- here's here are some real red flags that came up for me, big red flag as you were talking about this, and that's the issue that uh, mental illness can now be an acceptable condition for which to follow this path, 
And I have a real problem with that because that presumes that mental illness is not reversible. And it looks like there is an intent there behind this show. This is a sham. I mean, to me, this is reprehensible to say mental, mental illness is an excuse to kill somebody. I have a real issue with that. I have a real issue too with people with unconfirmed diagnoses. And if you don't do the biopsy, it's like not getting the MRI for an athletic injury. You're not sure until you get the final test. And so they're also pushing people who may or may not have, have the issue in, into a death situation. Those are ethical issues of monumental proportions. And me being raised in the ethics part of the, my profession, and that being a big part of my profession, <laughs> to me, these are grounds for removal of license, prosecution of people who participate in this. I, I have a moral outrage to what you just described. Right, and the problem is the law was written like this in the first place, and it, and it sort of makes sense why they did this. Uh, let's be pretty brutally clear. You have a right to refuse treatment, and I don't question that. You have a right to say, I don't want that medical treatment. Uh, I don't want... I, you know, I would rather take whatever comes to me than have that medical treatment. So that's fine. I'm not going to argue that. But then to say that if you refuse medical treatment, it's okay for the doctor to kill you. Now that's a whole other question. Yes, because it is. Now it's not just saying, you know, yeah, that's right. Because now I'm not just saying that it's okay that you say no to medical treatment and you're accepting the fact that you might die a natural death without ever having the chance of treatment. But you're going the next step and you're saying it's okay to kill me without actually attempting treatment. Now, in the case of mental illness, it's even worse. So there's a big debate that's been going on now between this Dr. Mark Comrade, who's a psychiatrist in the U.S., who's opposed to assisted suicide, and Margaret Batten, who's a long-time, long-time euthanasia activist. What kills me about these, quote, quote, academics is they can sell themselves as an academic, and they can argue in the literature as an academic, and yet people like me know Margaret Batten is a long-time euthanasia hack. That's what she is. <laughs> and because she has her PhD, does that make it any different than what she actually is? And so she's been fighting uh, back and forth with this uh, Dr. Mark Conrad about this whole issue of euthanasia for mental illness. And, of course, she's all in favor. Uh, she believes that this is something that, uh, you know, suffering is suffering is suffering. And in that sense, she's actually right. Suffering is suffering is suffering. If it's all about suffering, if that's what it's about, then I guess you can go ahead and do this. But the fact of it is, is uh, comrades, is, but wait a second here. You're telling me that there's certain medical conditions in the case of mental illness, which are, how would you say, somebody will never get better. And, because, and based on the concept of suicide, so they're saying someone's highly likely to die by suicide in this medical condition with this mental state. Therefore, they're considered, quote, quote, terminally ill. That's how they've been defined. So you see how the definitions flip upside down on everything, and they're arguing that, in fact, this is then considered acceptable in these circumstances. <laughs> Conrad is saying it's not acceptable, that, in fact, psychiatrists should never be involved with killing their patients, and, in fact, uh, this doesn't fit at all. But this is the type of debate going on. Now, here in Canada, they just set up a committee. So what happened is the Canadian government in March extended euthanasia to people with mental illness, but they had no, how would you say, um, rules for that? Um, they have rules for euthanasia for people with physical illness, but not with mental illness. So because they had no rules, they said, we're going to put a two-year moratorium on this 
and in two years' time, we're going to have a committee look at this, and they're going to come out with the rules. But I saw who they appointed the committee, and, of course, all the euthanasia hacks are on the committee. So obviously speaking, if that's who you're going to appoint to a committee, then, you know, obviously you've decided what you want. It's just a matter of convincing society that you've done it in a fair manner, that you've done it in an open manner, which, of course, is not true. It's all a lie. And this is how the whole thing sort of comes together. I agree. Um, so Alex, i got to I gotta have you know, hold it right there just for a second because we got to take our last break. But, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking about a very disturbing topic. And the longer we go on with this, the more outraged I'm becoming, and I'm sure you are too. And we're going to return to Alex in just a minute. But I just wanted to make sure that we give you an opportunity here not to go through what a lot of the people in Louisiana have gone through with Hurricane Ida, uh, what we saw in Texas in the February when we had a total loss of the power grid and people couldn't call for help. Um, this is why we decided to start offering satellite phones. And by the way, the satellite phone stores who we do business for, and they actually took free satellite phones to Louisiana during the crisis and tried to distribute it to as many people as they could do. And actually, they ended up depleting their supply, and now they're replenishing. But uh, it's a great company, and uh, you say, well, it must be expensive. No, it really isn't. It's not a chatty phone. It's a phone meant for emergencies. Like if you're in a canyon and your car breaks down at night and you don't have, any, you can't get a cell phone signal to call out. Yeah, this this is a, a really important device, and it costs one fourth of what I pay for my cell phone bill. And so I have mine, and they have all kinds of neat little features on it. We're coming out with the Galileo, which are news alerts and text alerts, and you can text uh, to people in, in in your tree, so to speak. So this is something that we highly recommend, given the fact that we've already seen issues where satellite phones could have made a big difference in people's comfort and sometimes their survival. How do you get yours? Well, for information, call 855-980-5830, excuse me, 855-980-5830. And again, ladies and gentlemen, I want to really push the importance that you get your finances analyzed going into these difficult times. We have a month before Janet Yellen's prediction. I don't know that her prediction's hard and fast to a particular date, but certainly the trend curve is there. And if we pass this $3.5 trillion bill, we'll approach $40 trillion in debt. Could your family finances absorb that? I don't think so. So you really need to look at how you can bulletproof yourself as much as possible. No obligation interview with Noble Gold to protect your finances. If you've got assets to protect and you don't have to be rich, you just want to keep what you got. Give them a call at 877-646-5347. That's 877-646-5347. Tell them Dave Hodges told you to call. And we've been talking with Alex here. Uh, just Listen, this stuff is enraging me. Alex, I want to just get to a real clear point here, okay? And I'm firm on this in my training, that when you are mentally ill, the issue of competence immediately comes to mind. And when you get to what we call SMI, seriously mentally ill people, they are not allowed to make decisions for themselves. And this really concerns me that mental illness is now put in there as a reason when it should be a prohibition against making this decision. Yeah, one of Canada's leading psychiatrists who actually is one of the editors of uh, the uh, Psychiatric Times was saying exactly that. He, and this is a, a physician who deals with what you call people who have high-risk cases in the case of uh, mental illness. And he was talking about the fact that to, to our government, he was saying this, that you know a lot of his patients 
they're in a situation where they lack effective confidence because mm-hmm. they're so so uh, depressed by their situation, but they are treatable. And just because they're, and he argues, because some of these people you would define as treatment resistant. So this is the ones who the euthanasia lobby are saying should have euthanasia because they're treatment resistant. And he's been arguing, well, just because someone's treatment resistant doesn't mean they're not, they're untreatable. Just because they're have, we're having difficulty finding a way to help this person doesn't mean that there's no way to help this person. It just means that we're having difficulty finding a way to help this person. So he talks about the whole issue of treatment resistance and things like that. And this is exactly what's going on. So in the Netherlands, they've actually been doing this for a while, this euthanasia for psychiatric conditions. So you see then uh, some of the people in the euthanasia lobby, what they did in the one case, that the one case that's been in the courts is the woman who uh, who died by euthanasia. And the euthanasia was botched a bit too, but that's a whole other issue. Um, what happened is that uh, she wanted to die, but she had recently had gone through this breakup with her boyfriend and she had, yes, long-term mental health issues, but because she, quote, quote, didn't qualify, she decided to tell them that she was autistic. And so then the psychiatrist then defined her as autistic. Now, this really hit home for me because I have an autistic son. So suddenly now, because she was defined as autistic, now suddenly she fulfilled the requirements of euthanasia. Now, this doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, if you know anything about autism, and I know quite a bit about autism, you know, why would you be killing someone who's autistic? Why would that be a reason now to confirm to say, oh, it's because now they had a medical condition, which would be, of course, lifelong, and therefore they can now justify the euthanasia. But this case has been in court now for quite a few years because the family's been angry with the fact that, first of all, she was defined as autistic, and they said, you know, our, our, our daughter, our sister... Sure was a lot of things, but she was probably not autistic. But secondly, they said, this was a, a situational depression, and then once she's dead, she's dead. She can't get out of this situational depression when she's dead. And this is exactly, so they, they were, they've they been very clear about this type of abandonment. And the only reason it's gone through the courts at all, because there's been lots of sort of cases like this, is because the family made such a big deal about it. Because the family kept on going to the media constantly with this, that if eventually the prosecutors thought, well, it does appear that there's something here, so let's you know let's prosecute the case. And of course, every time it's been prosecuted, because it's actually being prosecuted the second time now, <laughs> the first time the judges said, "Oh, it was fine." You know, this is the kind of thing that you get to. Um, the other thing that comes down to what happens with euthanasia is, well, what about the person who supposedly would have wanted it, but now is incapable of asking? Now you'd say, "Well, why is this an important question?" Because I had brought this up earlier, and this is the new direction of things. There was the case in the Netherlands where there was the woman who had, she had, um, she had dementia. And previous to having dementia, she had sort of made it clear that she would want to die that way rather than live with dementia. But the family then decided, okay, it's time that we do this. So when they showed up to do the euthanasia of their mother, the doctor made it very clear we're doing euthanasia. The woman resisted. She, she, she fought back. She was saying, no, 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 no. So they put um, a sedative in her coffee. Oh, my god! And so they gave her the sedative and, in her coffee, and then they went to do the act, and she continued to resist. So even though she had, had been sedated in her coffee, the sedation was not strong enough to actually stop her from resisting. So the doctor had the family hold her down as she was injected. Now, that went through the courts also. Now, the sad thing is, is how bad the Dutch courts have, how would you say, drank the Kool-Aid. 
because in the end, the uh, the uh, Supreme Court in the Netherlands said it was okay because the woman was not capable of changing her mind. So here you have a woman who clearly resisted, but clearly was saying no. But they did it anyway because she had made some comment years before that this is what she would have wanted. So they was expected that they're going to do this. Right. And now she's resisting away, and the court says, oh, but she wasn't capable of actually changing her mind at this time in existence. So this is all about freedom, choice, and autonomy. Of course, it's not. No, it's not. It it's is murder. About, you uh, just described murder. There's no other way around it. Absolutely. You hold someone down and kill them? Social acceptance. Yeah, I, I hear you. You know, we don't have time to get into this topic, too, but I got to believe that people that, uh, let's say, uh, are invested in the organ transplant industry probably like what's going on in the direction curve. I would, and just, we don't really have time to develop the idea, but uh, would you agree with that, that uh, organ transplant people have a conflict I, I of interest? I actually don't have to develop the idea because the fact of it is in the journals today, this has been the big debate, and you'll notice I've written on it several times with the whole issue of euthanasia about organ donation. Because where you have euthanasia, then obviously speaking, those people who die by euthanasia are opportunities for organ donation. So, you know, and then that's been written about. Well, the next question is, well, why would you actually kill the person first and then take their organs when, in fact, you can take their organs? But euthanasia by organ donation is now the new big push by the euthanasia lobby that we we don't give them any drugs to cause their death. Why would you do that for? They've agreed to euthanasia. So why, why don't you just start taking out the heart yeah. and the lungs and the liver and everything? Because once you've done that, they're going to die. They're dead anyway. So why would you kill them first? Exactly. And the other problem with killing them first is then you can't get the heart because the drugs they use to kill you affect the heart and it affects the lungs. So it makes it very difficult to get these organs. So why don't we just, you know, why don't we just do the euthanasia by taking out the organs? And that's such a big, that's such a good point. The ethical debate, that's what's going on right now. And yeah, that's, that's the debate right now in the journals. I'm glad you addressed that. Thank you, because I suspected that, and I go, well, that could be a conspiracy theory. Alex, we got about a minute left, and and you do such widespread good work here internationally. Tell people how they can support you. Well, you can go to my website and you can donate. So we're a completely donation-based organization. The website is found at epcc.ca epcc.ca but it's easier just to google euthanasia prevention coalition and it pops up uh the fact of it is is we're completely donor based we've got donors from around the world who support us membership is 25 dollars uh we're not government supported in any way which shouldn't surprise anybody (laughs) and on top of it uh we're highly information based but we're also activists in the sense that uh we help directly in areas where uh, people are fighting legislation to uh, work with those groups of people and help them fight. So, Yeah, we've been speaking with Alex Schattenberg of the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition, and you just heard the contact information to support his work. Alex, I want to say as we close here, thank you for what you're doing for humanity. I think there's a reward for you this in a karmic sense, but I really appreciate what you do. And as things update and things get more serious, please reach out to us and we'll have you back on. Thanks so much. Take care. Thank you very much.